Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I am your host for this episode, Mark Dubin from Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jose Matos and Spencer Payne from the University of Virginia Department of Otolaryngology. We will be discussing their recently published IFAR article, Evaluation and Workup of Immune Deficiencies in Recurrent Acute Rhinosinusitis, a Scoping Review. Welcome, gentlemen, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. I chose this article because recurrent acute rhinosinusitis is something um, that is far more common than some of my academic colleagues, you guys included, admit, as these patients often don't make it to tertiary centers. It then turns into a battle for those of us on the front lines with only the true disasters making it to the academic centers. And we see these patients, honestly, all the time. Ignoring the challenges of accurately diagnosing someone who actually has real recurrent acute bacterial sinusitis, this paper hits on the even greater challenge of determining the appropriate treatment for them. While I love operating and making people better, doing so on someone who gets six true acute bacterial sinus infections a year and them having them have six acute bacterial sinus infections a year after surgery is a bummer and lead to some negative feelings of self-worth in addition to some nasty Google reviews. And I personally don't need any more negative feelings of self-worth. So with that as background, I'd like to start with what interested you guys in writing this article. Thanks, Mark. And thank you for having us. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the time. So it's a great honor to be here. Uh, but as you said, you know, th these patients can be a challenge to treat and to manage. And, you know, we are lucky in that we get to have a close collaboration at UVA with our allergy and immunology colleagues. But in talking with them and uh, how to manage, about how to manage these patients and trying to figure out what the right thing to do is for them, you know, we quickly realized that there's not a lot of great literature out there. And so this is part of a greater initiative to do a, a, an expert practice statement on how to manage these patients. But the first thing we need to do was to figure out what the literature was on the subject, and that that was the, the impetus behind the scoping review. So for those of us uh, who are less well-read, i.e. me, uh, could you tell me what the current recommendations are for testing for immune deficiencies in both chronic rhinosinusitis and recurrent acute sinusitis? Sure. So if, if you look at um, ICAR, right, which is kind of our 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 gold standard document for summarizing the literature out there, there is some guidance for chronic sinusitis. So for calcitrant CRS, you know, ICAR recommends that we should routinely test these patients for a primary immune deficiency. So if they failed adequate medical and surgical management, because up to 50% of these patients can have immune dysfunction. But for current acute sinusitis, there's really much less guidance. Uh, and it essentially just says that immunologic testing is an option. You can consider allergy testing and bacterial culture in these patients, but there's not a consensus out there or great guidance on, on how to manage these patients. So just for, you know, again, for take it down to the lowest level possible, what immune deficiencies are, we, deficiencies are we specifically talking about, you know, for those of us who haven't taken our boards in over 20 years and at which point we memorized them and instantly forgot them? You know, so the most, the most common immune deficiency diagnosed in adulthood is common variable immune deficiency. So that's really the big one that you're looking for. Um, specific antibody deficiency 
is also something um, that can be looked at. Um, it's hard really in the adult population to think about complement deficiencies as a major source of issues because those uh, usually are identified much earlier in life. Um, and that's probably less of a, uh, of a thing we need to look into. Um, so, but those, those are the two big things. There's a lot of talk about selective IgA deficiency, which is probably slightly more overdiagnosed um, based on just looking at pure IgA levels, you know, by default, 5% of the population are going to fall out of the normal range, but, uh, but not all 5% of those patients um, are, are actually going to have selective IgA deficiency. So, but those are going to probably be the, the big three things that you, that you'll see. Great. So let, let's just move on to your article then with that as background. So what, I mean, in reviewing the, you know, the literature, you mentioned there was limited, um, limited publications. So how, you know, what did you wind up with, with a number of articles, you know, were they uniform and, and at the end of it, you know, what did they recommend? Right. So uh, there were 11 articles that, that met our criteria. So, so really, um, you know, not a lot to go from. And there were a lot of them were older, you know, from the 80s and 90s. And, and they really had a variable range of criteria. Even the definition of recurrent acute sinusitis was really variable. And interestingly, none of them actually followed the criteria that's set forth in ICAR, which is four or more uh, episodes a year. Some of them would be two or three. Some of them just said, just said recurrent sinusitis and didn't give a number. So that alone is a problem. Uh, and then the recommendation for what to order and what to test is also variable. So some studies recommended IgG subclasses. Some of them recommended quantitative immunoglobulins. Some of them recommended post-vaccination testing. And so really, ultimately, what we found is that um, even, even searching through all of the literature that we could get our hands on, there's... The, the, it's there's no consistency in the definition of recurrent sinusitis or how to manage it or what tests to order. So just as some background for our audience who may have varying uh, degrees of sophistication on all this, um, myself included, you know, what what is post-vaccination antibody testing? You know, what what are you looking for? What is that? So... <clears throat> So specifically, post-titer um, testing is to evaluate specific antibody deficiency issues. Um, and if you're going to think about uh, testing to see whether or not somebody can mount an actual response, um, then you do that with vaccines because that's how we kind of control knowing whether or not somebody's going to react. Um, and so this is when you would think about their immunoglobulin levels are normal. Um, and so you've kind of ruled out common variable immune deficiency if they've got normal antibody levels, but you're still thinking they seem to be getting sick or maybe they're you're culturing out the same bacteria every single time um, when they have these recurrent infections and they're just not um, mounting a good response. And so those post-viral those post titer levels are you basically give them a vaccine well you measure their titers first so commonly it's it's either to pneumovax um, streptococcus pneumonia or um, to tetanus uh, you get their titers first um, confirm that they're you know low or or, or don't exist uh, because they've in theory not been vaccinated vaccinate them and then wait six weeks and then repeat the levels um, and <clears throat> 
you're then looking for a certain percentage of the titers to you know increase by a certain amount that shows there is benefit. Um, there's some issues with um, this type of testing, though, uh, especially with the increase in number of uh, patients out there getting various forms of strep pneumo vaccination. So between Prevnar and Pneumovax, and the, which is 23 valent, but there's also a new 20 valent um, vaccine. If they've had any of these vaccines in the past, it really can mess up um, the results and how you're going to test it. And so there are some immunologists who are actually getting away from recommending these specific types of, of titers uh, in, in post-vaccination measurements because they can be very difficult to, to interpret. You also mentioned you know, testing for humoral response. So how, how would that be done? Well, and I think that was just the one article's way of referring to these types of titers. And so the humoral response is looking at the B-cell um, response. And so when you do pneumovax titers, you're specifically looking at a B-cell response. Um, tetanus titers um, do involve T-cells uh, interaction with the B-cells as well. Um, and so, um, you know, that way you're, you know, a, a purely humoral response is going to be the antibody levels from a, from a pneumovax titer response. So to piggyback on Spencer's comments, uh, a post-vaccination titer can also help you differentiate between a transient or secondary hypogammaglobulinemia versus a primary deficiency. So that means that you, if you get quantitative immunoglobulins and they're low across the board, but they have a normal vaccine response, then their hypogammaglobulinemia is due to some transient or secondary cause. So that can help also help you tease out that versus let's say CVID. That's a great point, Jose, because, you know, we see a lot of these patients will frequently get antibiotics and steroids um, for their infections, and the steroids can definitely transiently lower um, the IgG levels. And so if you do see a borderline IgG um, measurement, um, it may just be explained by the transient hypogammaglobulinemia of steroids or some other acute episode, so... As long as we're talking about IgG, let's just spend a quick minute on IgG subclass because it's invariably something that someone, one of my patients comes in, you know, with the lab core, you know, printout, you know, that shows, you know, one of those subclass deficiencies. What is there any, anything in the literature reviewed or in your personal experience um, to, to go over with our listeners about the clinical significance of an IgG subclass deficiency? The, the, Subclass deficiencies really are kind of a, a thing of yesteryear. You know, the articles that were reviewed um, that mentioned the subclass deficiency testing um, were some of the older articles. Um, <clears throat> it used to be thought that the various subclasses responsible for, you know, polysaccharide or protein or, or, or what have you, but that's just really not the case uh, anymore uh, when you speak to clinical immunologists. And so, uh, the recommendation that that's kind of being drilled into our heads at UVA, at least, is is to get away from the subclass testing because it's it's just really not clinically relevant anymore. So th that's great. I, I want to move on to ask some questions now about what you guys actually do in your practice. So let me. I mean, obviously, using this as background, which is somewhat limited uh, in its recommendations. What do you guys, when do you guys start thinking about this in a, let's just start with a chronic population. Do you 
do you test everybody for immune deficiencies who has who meets the definition of chronic sinusitis? I acknowledge that's not what this article is about, but I I, I am curious. I um I test everybody with chronic sinusitis um, with some very basic labs, um, but not necessarily for an immunodeficiency workup. But I get an IgE level. And we can have a debate about the, you know, the biomarker validity of IgE in terms of allergy and atopy and all that kind of thing. But it's also somewhat of a poor man's immunodeficiency uh, workup. Um, we actually published a paper a couple of years ago about the diagnostic utility of low IgE and identifying patients with CVID. So to me, the IgE as a single test is a nice little kind of you know, generic test that kind of, you know, that comes back super high. I've got to look at, you know, issues that may be causing the IgE to be high, you know, whether it's allergic fungal sinusitis, or maybe they have APBA or a co-concurrent atopic dermatitis or something like that. Versus if the IgE is low, I'll then go back and reflex order the other immunoglobulins. Uh, and so that to me is, is, is helpful. Jose, you, and I appreciate Spencer, your plug for one of your other publications. I didn't want to leave that unnoticed. Either. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I, I practice very similarly, uh, especially for PAL patients that you should do get, you know, a CBC and IgE levels. And, and then if they are, if they've had surgery and they've, you know, they, um, they've had good medical management, but they continue to have multiple infections, then I do start to think about uh, whether we need to evaluate them for underlying primary immune deficiency. So you basically are screening for, you know, hyperinflammatory type of markers and then, you know, doing the standard medical and surgical management. And then if they're not, if they don't get better with their, your, you know, your more traditional approaches, start looking for some of the zebras in all this. Correct. Right. And, and you've also got to, you know, evaluate these patients for the presence of other recurrent infections. Um, usually with an immune deficiency you know, the immune system isn't operating in a vacuum. They don't just have recurrent sinus infections, you know. And so um, it, one of the kind of shorthand questions that one of our immunologists recommends is, you know, you know, asking about, you know, recurrent pneumonias. You know, everybody in life, so to speak, quote unquote, gets one pneumonia. Uh, asthmatics, you can allow for two. Um, you know, but if they have more than that, then really start to think about that plus other areas of the airway that are recurrently infected, you know, working them up, you know, but we routinely ask the patients, you know, are they having skin infections or boils or have they had episodes of bacteremia and these types of things where, where immune deficiencies are also going to become more obvious. And what about in the recur? I mean, the recurrent acute populations, I said at the beginning, I mean, and I acknowledge that in an academic setting that you, you probably see it less than we do, you know, out in the, in the world. Um, and obviously there's a challenge in delineating what is true recurrent acute bacterial sinusitis. You know, is there a number that you would start to think of to start looking for this, you know, these immune deficiencies, when would you start, you know, testing for this? Is it after surgery and they don't get better or is it before surgery and they're truly getting documented bacterial infections with by endoscopy and CT scans with, you know, the standard acute bugs, you know, what would raise a red flag for you guys? 
Right. Well, as, as Spencer mentioned, you know, before surgery, if they have any history of other recurrent infections, pneumonia, pyelonephritis, meningitis, osteomyelitis, some the infections along those lines, then that raises my red flag to test them early. And, and I would start with quantitative immunoglobulins and go from there. And if those are all normal, then I have to ask myself, do I really think they have an underlying immune deficiency that I have not detected with screening blood work? And then they then go on to see allergy and immunology. I, I just think they're better at the, at the more complex, more rare immune deficiencies. And any management of an immune deficiency would be up to immunology anyway, at least in my, in my practice. But uh, in the absence of that, then yes, if they've had surgery, medical management, and they continue to have, you know, I think still four or more a year, that's when I start to think about um, testing those patients for underlying immune deficiency. Yeah. And I think before surgery, you know, maybe the patient who's having well over four a year, you know, you would say, well, let me, let me look at this before we just go in kind of guns blazing, so to speak. Um, or the, the patient who has a recurrent acute sinusitis, but it's also protracted, you know, it, it's incredibly long, um, you know, which may lead you to believe that, you know, in essence, they're almost behaving like a CVID patient where they're you know, they're, they're seeing this bug for the first time every time because they don't really have memory um, uh, B cells and, and, and they're having to start the response all over again. Um, and so I think you know, those, are the, those are the two populations that I will also think about. Uh, in addition to what Jose mentioned in terms of failing the surgical therapy, provided it was, it was done well. You know, <clears throat> And acknowledging it also is at the top of this paper. Do you consider cystic fibrosis testing at all in, in adults at any point? I know there's a lot of discussion of that in the past. I do uh, frequently test for CF. It's usually though in the in, in polyp patients um, or um, where they're not really clearing their their infections. Not necessarily in the recurrent acute population, but in the chronic um, sinus. I mean, there is. I think there's some literature to indicate that um, carriers, you know, or heteros heterozygous individuals with one normal allele. Uh, have an increased risk of recurrent uh, and chronic sinusitis, but I haven't necessarily started testing recurrent acutes for CF per se. And when you but test, I certainly am seeing plenty of adults now, you know, test positive either for heterozygous or homozygous, uh, you know, uh, mutations uh, with underlying sinusitis, um, even if they've had, in theory, screening when they were younger. And you test for gene mutations based on that comment, not, you're not sending people for sweat testing or you're doing the gene testing and then sending for sweat testing. Or yeah, I would, and I would preface this by saying I have no evidence other than if I'm really worried about it, like I'm ignoring the sweat testing and I'm just going straight to the genetic panel. So put yourselves in the shoes of someone practicing in a more community setting where they don't have access to the high level immunologist that you guys have. Um, where the range of enthusiasm for doing immunology, even for allergist immunologists, is variable. What would you consider an appropriate algorithm, you know, for, you know, in just kind of a linear way for someone who wants to appropriately consider immune deficiency in these, these difficult patients? Well, I would say that in if you're in the community and you don't have access to to immunology readily, you know, I think if if their patients are having, you know, only sinus infections, if you're screening them for infections of other body organs 
and, and they don't have a history of that. And their sinus infections are not protracted or, or they haven't had complications of, of acute sinusitis, then it's probably safe to not do any immune deficiency testing and treat them medically and then surgically if appropriate. And then if they fail that or they have any of these other red flags that we've talked about, then probably quantitative immunoglobulins is a place to start. And then if that's all normal, then you really have to ask yourself whether you need to do further digging and then refer them to an immunologist. I think it's possible also if you read about it and, and understand the protocols to do post-vaccination titers. I know some otolaryngologists who do. And so if you really don't have access to that, you can order that yourself as well. Or some primary care physicians are also, also do that. And so you could maybe partner with someone who has some experience in your community to help you. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with what, what Jose said in, you know, the, the other easy thing to do too would be to consider just ordering a tetanus titer or, 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 or a pneumovax or streptococcus pneumonia titer if the patient has been previously vaccinated. And if they have, if they have titers, you know, you're, 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 you've got your answer. Like they've been able to form antibodies, um, so to speak. It really only then becomes the, the interpretation then becomes, you know, giving the vaccine and then ordering the post vaccine titers and seeing how much they've changed by, um, you know, maybe something where, you know, if you're really going to go down that lane, you, you're, you should probably refer out unless you're, unless you want to interpret them yourselves. But again, like I said, that's kind of fraught with some difficulty. So. That's great, guys. Thanks for joining me. It's been a great discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Mark Dubin for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, signing off for now. Thank you.